Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome over to Products. Today I'm here with Dan Smoker, the VP of Product from iBotTop. Uh, Dan, you want to give us a, a quick little overview of your background and kick this off? Eric, thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, a little background on myself. I actually got a, I had a fairly unique journey into products. So I actually um, got a degree in biology coming out of college and started out in pharmaceuticals. So I was a, what's called a clinical trial manager. So it's essentially a, a project manager for clinical trials. So new drugs have to go through three phases of testing before they can get marketed and approved. And my job was to, to really shepherd them through those phases. So I did that for about 10 years. The company I was with there Went from about 70 employees, about 1,500 by the time I left. So I uh, got to see quite a bit of growth in that time, learned a lot around the field, but ultimately decided that wasn't really where I wanted to spend the rest of my career. And so had the opportunity to move out to Colorado at that point. My wife and I were both born and raised in Cincinnati, and we wanted to kind of expand our horizons a bit. So we moved out here, not really knowing what we were going to do next. And I got reacquainted with an elementary school friend of mine that had just started at a small tech startup. And in talking to him, he's like, well, we may have a need for for your skill set. A few weeks later, he calls me up. He's like, hey, remember how I said we might have a need? Well, we have a need. So I started there as a product slash project manager. I honestly didn't even know what product was. So it was uh, on the job training, really stumbling my way through it, listening to podcasts, reading blogs, going to conferences, really kind of the way that a lot of product people do it because there's not an official degree that you get. So I was at that company for about five years and then found out about Ibotta and moved over here about almost four years ago now. So talk to me about that first experience as a, as a product manager, right? And, and it's interesting, too, that they merge project and product management together, which are, I would say, very different. But talk to me about that first experience, what you learned and how you figured out you know, how to be a good product manager. Yeah, definitely. It was a very interesting experience. So it was a brand new company. We didn't even have a product out yet. And so when I came on board, we were in our last little sprint to get the MVP of the product out. It was a online storage and collaboration product. This was, you know, Dropbox was kind of big at that point, but it was really before, you know, Google and Apple and Microsoft and everybody really jumped into the storage space. But very quickly after we, we started spinning it up, storage became a commodity. So it was very interesting uh, kind of working our way through figuring out what product we needed to build, how we were going to find that market fit, ultimately releasing a product. So we had made the decision pretty early on to make it a B to C product just because that was a little bit easier to get into. But then over the course of the company shifted to a lot more to B2B, ultimately ending up in a white label space where we would offer our service out to, to other customers so that they could offer it out to their customers. So Cox Communications, which is a large uh, cable internet company, mainly on the East Coast, was one of our larger clients and they utilized our service, white labeled it and offered it out to, to their customers. So yeah, as I jumped in, it was interesting kind of, it, it was really thrown right into the lion's den because it got had to figure out really what we were building. Uh, didn't even know what an MVP was at the time. So trying to figure out what all has to go into that MVP experience, 
what is truly minimum viable as we looked at, at spinning that out. Got to learn a lot from, from some of my coworkers and their experience. And other, other than that, really just going out to conferences, meetups, that kind of thing, really getting, finding out more about the product space in general from as many people as I could. Now, you know, you're still in the product. So you obviously found something you love. What, what made you love being a product manager? What made you love being involved on the product side of the house? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Product is the most interesting space that I've ever been able to be a part of from a number of perspectives. One, I I love problem solving. I love getting to be able to to really break down a problem and figure out what a solution could be to that problem. Two, it's ever-changing. There's always new things coming out about product and development and that kind of thing that really, it keeps you on your toes. You have to stay at the forefront of all of the news, all of the latest things to really keep advancing yourself in that space. And then three, it's it's just fun. You get to to be a part of a lot of different teams. I mean, I would say on a weekly basis, there's not a single team at Ibotta that I'm not working with or talking to or uh, or that kind of thing. So tell me about the journey to Ibotta. What, you know, what, what drew you to the company? Yeah. So I, I kind of stated with my last company, uh, storage really was becoming a commodity. Online storage was becoming a commodity. And it's hard to be a product person in a commodity space when Google and everybody else can offer out gigabytes of free storage. Uh, it was hard for a little startup to keep up in that space. And so I wanted to try and expand from from there and uh, test the waters in another product company. So I actually found out about Ibotta Denver has a Denver Startup Week every September. And I found out about Ibotta through that. So they have a, a beer crawl uh, or a startup crawl, which essentially, you know, they every startup opens their doors and gives you beer to, to get you into, the, uh, into their doors. And got to talk to Luke a little bit, got to talk to a few other folks from Ibotta. It was very interesting for me. Denver is a, much more known for their B2B companies than their B2C companies. So Ibotta was really the first and still it's the largest B2C company within Denver. And so it, it really attracted me there because I knew I wanted to be in that space. I think secondly, and probably foremost was in talking to Luke Swanston, who is our chief technology officer. He, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. And um, getting to talk to him and kind of find out what Ibotta's vision was, where they wanted to go, and where they had gotten to already was very, very interesting. I think from a career perspective, I saw a lot of opportunity. They didn't have a product team when I first started. So I was one of the first product managers to join Ibotta. How big were they then? About 150 employees or so. Um, 150 so up, people, but no, no kind of formal product group then? Exactly. They had quite a large sales organization. So the technology team, I think, was about 25. But yeah, they did not have a a formal product team at that point. It was really the Luke, the CTO, and then Brian, our CEO, that were driving the product at that point. They are two incredibly bright, product-minded individuals. uh, And so they really nurtured the product uh, up until that point, but saw, but hit a point as a company that they they realized that it was not best for the company for them to continue in that space. And they needed to, to bring in an official product discipline. Awesome. So then, you know, you're there as a senior product manager and the product organization then kind of grows around you, right? As you grow to the VP of product. Talk to me about the experience of growing product there, how big it's grown to, what that was like. 
Yeah, yeah. It's been, like I said, really one of the primary reasons that I joined Ibotta was for the overall opportunity that I saw here. So after meeting Luke there, they opened up an official product position probably five or six months later, I think it was, which I applied for. And I actually didn't get the first job that I applied for here. I always like to throw that out there because I think a lot of people, as they try to enter into product space or move around a little bit, they get discouraged when they don't get that job that they really wanted. I didn't get that first job at Ibotta. So I actually reapplied to another position that they posted a few weeks after I hadn't gotten that position. And I reapplied uh, and I was able to get that one. So when I started, it was me and one other person in the product role. And so, yeah, I mean, Looking back, you know, almost four years ago now, it was a very different space. Like I said, there was 150-ish people within the company, about 25 in technology, two product managers. At this point, we're up to about, I believe, 600 people throughout the company. We've got about 250 at this point in technology, and we have uh, 31 on product itself. So gotten to, to grow quite a bit. So looking back four years ago, really had the opportunity to, to refine what it was to be in product at Ibotta, uh, got to grow with the company and moved into a director role. We actually at that point had a SVP of product come in that oversaw a, a bit of the growth that we had. And he was here for about a year. And it was when after he left that I was able to step into the VP of product role. So when I stepped into this role, I believe we had about 12 people in product. So gotten to scale it over that time. And it's been interesting seeing our growth trajectory and where we've gone from a product perspective. We've changed quite a bit even in the past year. I'm the type of person that doesn't like process for process sake, but at the same time, acknowledging over the course of this time, the past year, that we're at the point that more process did make sense. And we needed to really provide more consistency for all of our stakeholders so that no matter which product manager they're working with, they know what to expect out of them. They know what they can get they know where to go to get the information that they need. Got it. So what was the impetus, right? You you have a really small product org, you know, kind of non-existent from a, a title perspective, even though it was, it was being filled by, you know, some of the senior execs to now having, and at that point you were 150 people, right? And Correct, then yeah. uh, now you have 30, 31 uh, thereabouts, right? In a 600 person company. So the company's gone, you know, 4X or product has gone, you know, 30X plus, right? Yeah. <laughs> Infinity yeah. start from zero, right? But so there's been a big push. <laughs> there's been a big push into product. What what was kind of the aha moment that people said, oh, we really need to invest here? Yeah, I think it was a few things. I, I think starting with engineering in particular, seeing the value that a product manager can bring to the product as a whole. When I started, we were really split up by platform. So mobile devs were together, platform was together. We had internal tools group. So I really oversaw the platform and internal tools side of things. And so stepping in there, they, they saw the value of you know having very well-defined criteria, acceptance criteria for what they were trying to build and user stories and, and everything that goes along with product. And so I, I feel like from a team perspective, we were able to make a lot of impact and show the value there. I think from an organization perspective, we were continue we're able to continue to show the impact that we could drive by having product in the space uh, that we needed to. And so, yeah, over the course of the years, as we continued to grow, the 
the product team was was able to show the value that they can provide and drive. One of the more recent expansions of product was really born to the the technical side of things. And so we have a few squads that are really focused on building out our microservices and our our architecture and that kind of thing. And so we made a proposal to bring in actually technical product managers at that point that are really more focused a lot more on the the technical side of the business. And again, able to drive a lot of value through the disciplines uh, that that product entails in those spaces. That's interesting. So now Ibotta is, uh, I've heard they reached a billion dollar valuation. Congratulations. The whole Thank you. Yeah, that was exciting last year. Our our CTO, Luke Swanson, uh, in the announcement to the company, he actually dressed up in a purple unicorn costume. So uh, that was that was kind of fun to see. That is cool. Now, looking back in, in getting there, right, how did you guys go about finding that product market fit and kind of establishing what is Ibotta today? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So overall, in case some of the listeners don't know what Ibotta is, so Ibotta gives cash back for everyday purchases. So when I go to the grocery store and buy a pack of Oreos, if we have an Oreos offer in Ibotta, we will give what we call savers, we call our users savers, we will give the saver a $1.50 back or whatever it may be. And how our CEO kind of came up with that idea was in looking at the market in general. Right now, um, or before Ibotta really really got started, the only way that you could do this was via coupons. And you know, you had to get the Sunday circular or some kind of flyer that you have to cut out the coupon, take those physical coupons to the store. Not to mention that it wastes literally tons of paper every single month. It was also it just kind of a pain in the butt. Nobody really wants to do that. And so you had your kind of extreme savers that would go to those links, but sell a space to really to flip the industry on its head and really provide a better experience for everybody. Both the, the marketers that were putting these out as well as the shoppers that were trying to utilize them. And so sell a space to really provide a better mechanism for for marketers to reach the people that they wanted to. And so we're able to find a product market fit pretty quickly after we got the our initial MVP out almost seven years ago now. So quite a bit of growth from an overall user scale very quickly and, and have just continued to lump on top of that. Since then, we've launched a few new products. And so with each one, you really have to find that product market fit as well. And so one of the first things that I, I did when I joined Ibotta, I spun up the online retail side of things. And so that was really working with Amazon and eBay and Groupon. And if you launch any of those apps or sites from Ibotta, we'll give you a, a portion of your purchase back. So if I spend $20 on, on Groupon, we'll give you 3% of that purchase back. And the product market fit for that one was pretty easy as well because we were really going out to our our current savers. It was just giving them an extra way to earn more money, to earn more bonuses. Bonuses are something that we really try, try to utilize as much as possible to drive the habituation so that folks keep coming back to Ibotta. And then the most recent one that we've moved into is, is around payments and really trying to drive shopping behaviors based on the the cashback that we provide as a payment mechanism. So if I go to Chipotle for lunch today and I get a burrito, I can actually pay for that burrito via Ibotta, via QR code that we we display to the saver. And they get immediate cash back for that. And again, the market fit there was interesting. It was a little bit different than the other two areas that we had moved into because it does require them to 
connect a credit card or a debit card, soon to be a bank account, so that we could pull that payment out from, you know, pay ourselves and then allow them to pay with an Ibotta as well. But finding that that market fit is always, you know, one of the the more complex things that we have to do as a, a product team. Yeah, and now you described Ibotta as a, a B2C company, correct? Correct. We uh, we kind of say it's a B2B2C. So yeah. we work with both, you know, the brands and retailers, and then we also work with our, our consumers. And it's interesting. It's a very interesting model because we don't have one without the other. And so what our brands and our retailers want to see is really driving volume and kind of the scale that we can offer them. But we can't get to scale without the customers. But on the customer side, we don't get the customers without the brands. And so we had to do a lot of really interesting things to get things off the ground, really self-funding offers and driving things that way. Our chief operating officer used to joke around that, you know, we would put out an M&M's offer, even though it wasn't strictly through M&M's at the time. And, you know, Mars would call us up and be like, what the heck's going on? Why do you have this in your app? And we we tell them the data and the, the volumes that we were driving. They're like, oh, that's really interesting. Can we pay for that? So we had to do a lot of interesting things to start off to really try and marry the two. So growing our consumer base while growing our brand and retail space so that they can each really catapult together. Yeah, that's really interesting because you have this two-sided marketplace, right? And there's always this challenge of having, you know, a, a enough on either side. Talk to me about some of the interesting things you did. I think you just highlighted or highlighted a little bit of one with, you know, Mars and M&Ms. But tell me some of the things you did to kind of get that balance right. Yeah. And to be quite frank, it's something that we're still trying to do. I think as we provide scale, the brands and the retailers always want more scale. And so we're always having to find ways to push the envelope. I think secondly, our primary demographic is still really the the coupon conscious minded people anyways. Um, And so there's a limited total addressable market there. And so we're always looking for ways to make it easier and easier for anybody to come in and earn cash back whether they're a couponer or not. So we actually recently had a town hall at Ibotta and our CEO had everybody raise their hand if they had to use the app in the past week. And, you know, it was three quarters of the room raised their hand. And then he said, okay, uh, or I'm sorry, that was for the past month. And then he said, keep your hand up if you've used it in the past week. And, you know, probably half of everybody's hand went down. And then he said, okay, now be honest. Keep your hand up if you would use the app if you didn't work at Ibotta. And from there, there was probably 10 or 15 people <laughs> that, that still had their hand raised. And a lot of that is due to the demographic that we ultimately try to bring in. Because there still is, there's a lot that goes into becoming a saver on Ibotta. And, you know, it used to be that you had to go to the grocery store and scan a barcode and then go to the cash register and pay for it and get a receipt and then take a picture of the receipt, all to get a dollar back. So there was a lot of effort there. And so a lot of what we're trying to do now to increase the user scale that we have, which will then in turn increase the brand scale that we have, is really decreasing the friction to get that dollar back. So how can we make it as easy as possible by adding loyalty linking? So um, we have partnerships with over 150 retailers at this point, grocery stores, which you can put in your loyalty credentials and we automatically find the offers that you have and give you cash back for those. So there's no uploading the receipt. It's a lot easier. And then we send reminders on the back end to really drive them back into the app and get them to re-engage. So we've seen quite a bit from that, been able to increase the scale from that. And then throughout this year, we're going to be looking at a number of other ways to really try and meet savers where they are. So what are the ways 
ways that we can get in front of them, whether it's on a mobile app or their desktop computer or on a Kroger website or a Safeway website or whatever that may be, how do we ensure that we're getting in front of them as easily as possible and making that flow as seamless as possible? So what about takeaways for the, you know, the listeners out there that are working on two-sided marketplaces, like some advice you might give them on how to get it kickstarted. You know, we could go back to some of the things you're doing with partnerships or, you know, in the Mars case, right, you were running a, a program that normally a Mars would pay for, but you were just doing it yourselves to drive the, the B2C, the consumer side demand, right? Yeah, yeah. I would say a, a few things come to mind in particular. One, test a lot incrementally drive your, your product forward and test the things that you're doing. Cause there's a number of things that may just not work and it's not worth putting the effort in to continue to develop that side of things. Second is be creative, utilize, you know, 400 testing and drive users to a page that basically all it says is sign up for this future product and see what you get out of that. See how much interest you have, Um, that kind of thing. And then this one almost goes without saying, go out and talk to all of your users, not only the consumers, but the businesses that you work with as well. Uh, I think that's something as product managers, especially as a a company grows and scales, it's an art that sometimes is lost. But to me, it's one of the most important things as a product manager that we can get out and do every day. There is always a customer out there. There is always a brand out there for us that is willing to sit down and talk to us for 30 minutes and really provide the insight that we need to hear. Because when it comes down to it, we're not our customers. We can't we can't say exactly what it is that they need. And we're also not our brands. We don't know exactly what it is that Mars or Kellogg's or Post needs. Uh, and every single one is going to be different. We need to listen to them, hear what they have to say, and go from there. So talk to me about, uh, you know, it leads into a good question, right? Which is how do you conduct those interviews? How do you prioritize this feedback? Because I imagine you can get a ton of feedback given, you know, a large number of consumers and a a good bit of uh, interactions or good uh, large number of brands too. Yeah, absolutely. So it's one thing that we've done and we're, we're really pushing on a lot more now is talking more to our brands and really trying to figure out ultimately what is it that they're trying to do? Why do they like Ibotta? What, what is it that they're trying to get out of it? Uh, I think we have a pretty good handle on our consumers still want to get out and talk to them and obviously do that quite a bit, but really trying to talk to our brands and our retailers a lot more to figure out what more they need from us, both from an offer perspective where we give cash back, but also from an ad products perspective and that kind of thing that we, we offer as well. The thing that I find best to kind of shape those interviews is asking open-ended questions and trying not to lead, uh, not to lead the witness as much as possible. We need to get their insights and we don't want to feed our often misconceptions about what they want into the process uh, through the questions that they ask. And so we do that. We try to do that as much as possible through really open-ended questions, especially when we have uh, kind of prototypes in front of them and that kind of thing. We want to make sure that One, they're not afraid to, you know, we're not sold on this. You're not going to hurt our feelings if this ultimately doesn't serve serve your needs. But yet trying to get as much as possible out of the the conversation and interaction with them. I imagine there's a good bit of trust you need to establish with your customers, right? As you're kind of this go-between in between the brands and the consumers and and connecting them and saving money. And, And you have a lot of data, a lot of information. Talk to me about you know, establishing trust with your customers. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that every company has to do, but I think especially at Ibotta, I mentioned that we're moving into the payment space. And so we're asking them to connect their payment information to Ibotta. So they're, they're giving us that information so that we can ultimately provide the experience that they want to provide. But it takes a lot of trust to get to the point that I'm okay giving you my credit card information or my bank account information. And so, yeah, trust is really something that we're focusing on this year. So for 2020, we have three strategic pillars that we're really looking at. I mentioned one thing already earlier in the podcast, and that's simplification. How can we make this as easy as possible? Dead bang simple to earn that cash back that savers want to earn by coming into Ibotta. Secondly is building trust. How, how can we ensure that through every interaction with our savers and with our brands that we're building that trust, that we can prove to our savers that their information is safe, that regulations like CCPA, we, we take those seriously and we give them ways to, to interact with their data, see the data that, that we're collecting, and then ultimately delete their data if they want that. How can we make sure that we're, we're giving them the credit that they feel like they deserve? So the worst experience you could have coming into Ibotta is you think you're going to get money back for a purchase, and then we ultimately don't give it to you. How do we ensure that that doesn't happen, whether, whether it's making it clear up front what it is that is valid for that offer, or on the back end, ensuring that our systems are scalable enough that we can provide that cash back. But yeah, I think building that trust, it's not just around you know providing a little lock icon on the screen where they input their credit card. It's, it's done in every single interaction that we have with our, our users and ensuring that we're giving them what they're expecting, uh, ensuring that our marketing comms are on par with what we're actually going to deliver within the app and within the experience. Yeah, I know that's been a big focus at Pendo too, and especially in today's age, right, where people are concerned about privacy even more so than they were in the past. I, I think it's it's really important that we as product leaders instill trust as part of some of our core product principles. I absolutely agree. I think more and more that's going to become one of the most critical parts of product is of any product is building that trust. I think there's been so many so many times where data has been leaked or there's been a security breach or or that kind of thing. Equifax is the one that comes to mind first and foremost, I think for me, but yeah, we have to ensure that we're establishing that trust and then continuing to build on that trust with our users. Yeah. And and not just the core product itself, but all the experiences that Mm -hmm. make up the product experience, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's, let's talk about something a little bit different. I mean, part of being a product manager is collaboration, right? And working with different departments. You know, what, what advice do you have on handling that cross-functional alignment, especially in an environment like Ibotta that was that was very sales-focused at the beginning and now is kind of broadened out into having a strong product group? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost is communication. As a product manager, one of the, the, the biggest skill sets that I feel like a product manager needs to have is the ability to communicate not with just one stakeholder, but every stakeholder. And it's 
rather interesting at the times because every stakeholder is a little bit different. When you're talking to sales, it's very different than if you're talking to senior leadership, which is very different than if you're talking to engineering. And as a product manager, we have to talk all of those. We have to be able to talk to all of those. We have to be able to communicate out what is the story that we're trying to drive here? What is the story for the product that we're building? And we have to be able to, to, to tell that story well, no matter who our audience is. So for me, communication is really first and foremost. Secondly is, is collaboration. So you ask about how do we collaborate? We have to collaborate. So we have to ensure that we're bringing our stakeholders along on the journey with us. This is not a you know, we're going into a room with a whiteboard and we'll come up out with a roadmap. This has to be a collaborative process with them so that we can figure out what are the needs that they have around this problem space, around this problem that we're trying to solve. What are the things that sales needs to drive as a part of this new product that we're building? What are the ways that senior leadership needs to understand what we're building and what, what interaction do we have to have around that? And then lastly, and this is one of those that I struggled with at first because, like I said, I'm not a, a process for process sake type of person, but documentation is really key. So as you're having the communication, as you're collaborating with all of your stakeholders, you have to get to the point that you have documentation around what it is that you're ultimately building. So that six months from now, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, why did we build this out this way? we can go back to that documentation and, and really refresh our memories together to ensure that everybody is going forward on the same page. Uh, and we talked about trust with our users. I think it's really building that trust with our stakeholders as well. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good advice. I like that. And it, it applies not only with building credibility with engineering and design, but how you can use friction with sales and customer success too, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So now, Agata's obviously has a, a big mobile component, right? Talk to me about being a product leader in the mobile space and what makes that you know, interesting and challenging. Yeah, being a product leader in the mobile space has been fun. It's always changing. And I think that's one of the biggest things. There's always new releases of iOS and Android coming out. And we always want to figure out how do we, how do we ensure that we're building to all the new capabilities that we have there. But then on the other side of it as well is just ensuring that we're, we're still providing the things that our users want. I think there's a lot of cool functionality, kind of buzzwordy type of things out there that may be a little bit too early to grab onto. And so you're really weighing what makes sense to build right now versus what makes sense to kind of keep an eye on and develop over time. I think if you look back to when the App Store was released, which I think was, what, 12-ish years ago at this point, it's really phenomenal how much things have changed just in the, those 12 years. And I think while it won't continue at the pace that it has for the past 12 years, we'll continue to see really the rapid inter- iteration around what it is to build a mobile app, what it is that users and consumers expect out of a mobile app, maybe even getting to the point that mobile apps are no longer the thing. It'll be interesting as, you know, Apple is supposedly developing glasses and augmented reality. And what does that look like as things go forward? Yeah. So if you, if you look at trends in mobile or even in commerce, particularly the electronic commerce space, what do you think product people should take note of? What should they watch out for? (laughs) It's a good question because I actually just mentioned my answer with that, but augmented reality to me is one of those things. So like I said, augmented reality is, is something that's been around for a bit. 
I think it's been built into iOS and Android operating systems now for a couple of years. It's one of those things that isn't necessarily where it needs to be yet to see massive adoption, but it's one of those things that I think could be really, really huge for the industry over the next five to 10 years. So as you look at kind of the use cases for augmented reality, I'll, I'll speak for Ibotta in particular. One of the biggest pain points that our, our savers have is being able to go into a grocery store and find the products that we have offers for. But if you can imagine a view in which, you know, whether it's, you know, Apple has great looking glasses that you can put on or just utilizing your phone camera, being able to go into a store, utilize augmented reality, and we automatically tell you based on the images that we're seeing if, you know, Pop-Tarts are on offer or Diet Coke is on offer and really being able to utilize kind of the machine learning side of things as well as the augmented reality side of things to pop up in front of our users what may be valuable to them at at that time. It would save massive amounts of time. It would really allow kind of a fun experience potentially. I think more and more companies are playing around with this. Uh, Magic Leap is one of the companies that I've been following for the past few years that's really playing with this space and I think could push it forward even more. But to really see the mass adoption, it's got to be something that becomes more of a a commonplace for, for average users. And I think, you know, should... Apple move into that space and have Apple Glass or whatever it may be called. Uh, it's kind of similar to the Apple Watch. You know, people were more and more were moving away from from wearing watches, and now Apple Watch is the best selling watch in the world. It really, really need to have a, a, another trigger to really drive that adoption. But it's it's a space I know I'm really keeping an eye on. I think is worthwhile to to keep note of as as we're planning out products and looking at what the future holds. So, I mean, you can you can see augmented reality being one trend. And you mentioned, too, like kind of the computing power moving away from computers or our phone and into, you know, wearable devices, right? Whether it's glasses, yeah. et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think ultimately, you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now, whenever it is, uh, I think phones will become obsolete. And there's going to be something else there, some kind of wearable that really takes its place to, to integrate all of that together. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's it's interesting to think about like what the phone's really there for, too, right? Yeah. It's like a little computer, but at the same time, you need the the interface and maybe the the phone part of it. You know, the the conversation part just all moves into the the earbud, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think we're kind of getting there today with the AirPods. So I have my AirPods set up so that if I get a text message, it automatically reads me the text message. And while that's not all the way there by any means, there's still a lot a lot of iteration that would have to happen to get me completely away from my phone. But you know, the concept that I can hook my AirPods up to my watch and it can read me the same messages and I can at least at a high level see emails and things just from my watch. I think it's moving more and more towards a world in which Phones aren't necessarily needed. Doesn't mean they go away entirely, but I think our dependence on them could become less and less. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I know I, I read a lot of my text messages on my watch. It'll be kind of cool to have like the longer emails read into my ear if I wanted them, you know, as I was in the middle of something else. That would be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. What are you using for that? Uh, which part? The, reading your text messages into your earbuds. Oh, it's built into iOS now. So if you have uh, AirPods or AirPods Pro, you can set it up. I forget exactly how you toggle it on, but uh, I had found it at some point. And it's a nice feature. I like it. When I'm on the train in the morning, I just stick in my, my AirPods and 
you know? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting with Apple is that the products are really intuitive, but yet I always find out about some new feature that I've had <laughs> and didn't know about or didn't use, right? So, right. Yeah. I feel like yeah. that education could maybe be a little bit better, but, you know. I, I always I always like those articles that are released after a new iOS is pushed out. It's like the top 11 things you didn't know. I always like to read through those. Yeah, I just learned one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about uh, qualities that make strong product leaders. You know, what are they? What do you look for in people you're hiring and what do you aspire to personally? Yeah, I think for me personally, as a product leader, really the three things that I like to see in product leaders and that I try to be myself. I think first and foremost is a good listener. I alluded to this already for product managers in general. We have to be able to listen. We have to be able to listen to our users. We have to be able to listen to our stakeholders. We have to be able to listen to each other. And so being a good listener is one of the key areas to being a successful and strong product leader. I think secondly is, is being a teacher. There's been a lot of things as a product person, it progresses throughout their their career. There's a lot of things that they learn. There's a lot of things that they pick up that, for instance, I didn't know, you know, nine years ago when I started in product that I know today. And so I have to be able to teach that out to people that are just starting their career in products. The third one to me is really being a problem coach. So as a product manager, I think you're a problem solver. But as a product leader, you have to become a problem coach. So it's not always trying to solve that problem, but it's coaching others for how they can figure out to best solve that problem. So it's really taking what you've learned, what I've learned, and helping others get to the point that they can solve those problems as well. And I think it kind of goes along with number two in being a teacher, but it's really coaching others to become that strong problem solver as well. Yeah, there's an abstraction there, right? Because you can't... Yeah into the problem itself you have to help them think about how to solve problems as like a framework yes absolutely sweet well we're kind of nearing the end here so i have two final questions specifically for you you know what's your favorite product yeah i think my favorite so i'll break this down a little bit my favorite software product is slack i actually got started on slack at my previous company campfire had just shut down for those of you that don't know campfire was a great tool that was out there previously. And for me, I think it was actually one of the primary things that drove the massive adoption of Slack early on uh, was Campfire shut down. And so I actually had a chance to get into the beta of Slack at that point. And I've loved it ever since. I I love the intuitive interface. I love receiving less emails, quite frankly. Uh, it's, It's a tool that is just always there. I love being able to kind of customize notifications and set up what my status is based on, you know, if I'm in a meeting or commuting or, you know, what my overall availability is. And there's a lot of cool ideas that they have in places that they can go. So I would say overall, from a software perspective, Slack is still my my favorite product. From a physical space, my AirPods Pro are absolutely my favorite physical product that I've ever had. I'm, I'm a little bit of a headphone snob. I've probably had 15 different pairs of headphones over the past five years. Just ask my wife, it drives her nuts. But the AirPods Pro, when they came out, I was like, this might actually be the best thing that I've ever had and something that that I'll actually stick with over time. They're great at noise noise cancellation. So sitting on the train in the morning, 
very easy to concentrate, put on a little music. And then, like I was talking about before, there's nice interactions that it has with iOS in particular, reading text messages, Siri integration, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, evidently quite a few that I don't even know about. So it's one of my favorite too. So I'm gonna have to figure out this other stuff that's there. Uh, so look forward to that tonight. So a, a final question for you: three words to describe yourself. Sure, I struggled with this one. I always struggle uh, kind of figuring out things that would describe me. So I actually asked my wife to help me out a little bit. But I would say the three things that three words that really describe me best. Uh, first is dedicated. Whether it's you know, to my job, to my work, to my family. I'm a pretty dedicated guy. Once once I'm in, I'm in. You can count on me. Secondly is empathetic. I think it's important as a product person to have empathy, to really try and understand the needs of everybody that, that we're working with. And I think I'm a fairly empathetic person. And then third is outcomes driven. To me, I really want to see the results that are the outcomes that are coming out of the things that I'm doing. And so that's really what drives me is to to get to the point that I can see the outcome from the things that we're, we're working on. Awesome. Love it. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. I, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun talking through this. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>